You're listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. So, having defined the church as a community of people in covenant with God, uh, it's about time for me to explain what I mean by this word, covenant. What is a covenant? I told you I'd come back to that question, friends, and I'm doing that now. Welcome back, by the way, to this podcast edition of the Resurrection Membership Class. So glad to have, uh, I uh, suspect, both current and prospective members of uh, my congregation listening in here. So, folks, for those of you who may be new to Presbyterianism, you might as well know Presbyterians can't define the church without referencing the covenant. Indeed, that's a favorite synonym that we use for church. The church is a covenant community. So that's one reason to devote a little bit of time to opening up uh, a biblical understanding of covenant, just so that you understand our view, our understanding at resurrection of the nature of the church and who we are as a local congregation. Uh, But there's an even more basic reason uh, for devoting a whole episode uh, to the church as a covenant community. Folks, what we call covenant theology uh, is actually what frames everything about our approach to the whole Bible. You could call it an interpretive framework for how we see all that God says in his word. Now, when I use the expression interpretive framework, uh, I'll just submit to you that everyone comes to the Bible uh, with a kind of framework for interpreting it. They may not know what it is. They may not be aware of it, but they have it. So, for example, some Christians assume that it's the New Testament that's relevant for us as New Testament Christians and not so much the Old Testament. Well, that's an interpretive framework for understanding the Bible. Or somewhat related to that, there are some Christians who uh, take it for granted that the Old Testament is a kind of well, plan A of God, and then the New Testament is a better uh, plan B by God. Well, neither of those frameworks are what we consider at resurrection to be uh, the right framework. Here is the way uh, we, in this particular Presbyterian tradition, interpret all the scriptures. Here's the big uh, view. God is sovereignly advancing his kingdom in the earth. This is something I've already been speaking about in this series. But I'll add now, primarily by gathering people throughout history and entering into a covenant relationship with them. So that's our understanding of the whole of this book we call the Bible and what it's recording of God's a great axe within it. He's advancing his kingdom, and the primary way, the fundamental way that he does that is by gathering people uh, into covenant relationships with him. There are multiple stages in that work of God, all unfolding through time as we see in the Bible, but we believe that it's all part of one plan from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And indeed, we like to say 
that all of God's people, whether you are in the days of Abraham uh, or in the days of Martin Luther or in the days in which we currently live, we're all uh, part of one covenant of grace. That's how we speak uh, as Presbyterians. Now, uh, there's a, a simpler way, perhaps, to put this, and a more personal way, not unlike the distinction I made in defining the gospel. <clears throat> the gospel has a global uh, reach, and it also has a very personal and intimate reach into our lives. Uh, that global agenda of God in covenant making also has a very personal and intimate uh, focus for each one of us who are in Christ. Um, Christianity, as I think every Christian would recognize, is about having a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But folks, that relationship in the Bible uh, is called a covenant. Do you want to have a relationship with God? Do you value more than anything else your relationship with God? Well, whether you use this term or not, you want or you are currently enjoying a covenant relationship with God. Covenant is the word which describes how God has always related to human beings in all ages. That's a bit of an introduction then uh, to what I want to talk about in this uh, episode. Uh, some of you who may be listening have perhaps heard me expound on the doctrine of the covenant from the Bible before. But for others of you, this may be the very first time you've heard anything like this. It's important, uh, certainly, in understanding Resurrection Presbyterian Church, and it's also important, we would humbly submit, to understanding your Bible and even your relationship with the Lord. So, uh, as we move ahead, I do want to have uh, as my ambition to great, um, to unpack, uh, in terms of covenant, uh, your own relationship with God and how it works and also along the way be pointing out uh, the implications for our understanding of this for the particular local church, uh, Resurrection Presbyterian. So let's begin by considering just the word covenant and the concept behind the word as it's found in the Bible. Even those who've never heard of what we call covenant theology, uh, if you're a Bible reader, if you have read deeply in the scriptures, you know the Bible speaks a great deal about covenants. Just a uh, thoughtful uh, remembrance here for a few minutes of some of the big moments in biblical history will, will remind us all of that. So the first time that the word covenant appears in the Bible, it's in Genesis chapter 6, and it's in the days of Noah. And God enters into Noah's life his world, if you will. And he says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. There's a great deal to be said about what God is doing there. I just want you to notice that he makes very clear he's doing something he calls establishing a covenant with Noah. Moving forward, just a few pages in your Bible, but great leaps in terms of time uh, in history. To Genesis 15, you see this concept of covenant coming up again in the days of Abraham. 
That's when we read in Genesis 15, verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and so on. Going forward uh, in our Bibles, another major moment in the story uh, of the Bible is in the days of Moses, of course. In Exodus chapter 34, we read, what do you know? Yet again, God saying, Exodus 34.10, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And you, if you know the story of Moses and the deliverance of God's people from Egypt, you know what God is referencing there. Once again, uh, God making covenant. Moving forward in the scriptures, uh, if you were to go all the way to the days of the king uh, who was a man after God's own heart, King David, uh, we read about him, of course, in the history portions of the Old Testament, but we also read about him and we know something about him from the Psalms. And uh, for example, in Psalm 132, we read, Verse 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. Quote, one of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Are you seeing a pattern here? Uh, These major moments in what we call the history of redemption, God Uh, shows up uh, and enters into covenant with certain individuals that have implications for the whole of his people in the Old Testament. Well, uh, that's not the end. I want you to know, particularly of relevance to us who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that in a very uh, sad uh, and otherwise discouraging time in the history of God's Old Testament people, Uh, The prophets of old begin to talk about God doing something wonderful uh, as he sends his Messiah. And among the many ways they talk about this, they talk about God making a new covenant. I'm thinking right now of Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, one of the most famous references to this new covenant. Verse 31, behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, that's something foretold by the Old Testament prophets. But when our Lord Jesus himself, in instituting what he calls the Lord's Supper, uh, says, this is the new covenant in my blood, oh, it becomes crystal clear at that point that the prophets were speaking of yet another covenant that was going to be made by God with his people in and through Jesus Christ. That's the new covenant 
that the Bible speaks of. What have I been trying to do in this little Bible survey, this uh, romp through Old Testament on into the New Testament? Uh, Folks, I've been trying to make the point, uh, surely we can all agree, covenant is a pretty big deal in the Bible. And we believe at resurrection that it is the way, the way, that God deals with his people in all times and all ages. Now, this is where I do see the uh, disadvantages of a podcast because I can't show you a whiteboard. I can't uh, draw something on it for you to see. But imagine with me at this moment that um, I've drawn on a whiteboard a five-story house. Imagine, if you can, that I've drawn this as a magnificent house, a palatial house, uh, both in size and in beauty. Uh, Each of those five covenants that I've just uh, walked you through from the Scriptures would represent one of those stories of the house, each one resting on the one beneath it. And as I drew that illustration... Uh, What I'd be trying to convey is that when we see these successive covenants in the Scriptures, uh, we're to recognize that they are each in their own place building one big, I'll call it covenantal edifice, which is otherwise called the church. Jesus says, I will build my church, as we saw last time. And the church is built through time by means of these covenants that I've just been citing from the Scripture. Each time, uh, God is taking aside one of their fathers in the faith to make covenant with him. He's actually building on the work he's already done. He's adding to it. He's enlarging it. It's the same beautiful building with some renovations and certainly with some additions, and it's becoming more and more magnificent all the time. So, uh, that's where the word covenant comes from. It comes from the Bible. It comes from these significant moments in the history of redemption where God does something dramatic and calls it a making of a covenant. Uh, That's the word and that's the concept as it's found in the Bible. Let's move on then to consider, secondly, how covenants actually work in the Bible. Let's get under the hood, as we sometimes say, and figure out how it is that God designed for his covenant to work. What's it like, in other words, to be in covenant with God according to the Bible? Now, we could look at all kinds of biblical evidence. There's so much indeed, but we're going to limit ourselves in answering that question to Uh, God's covenant with Abraham. I'm convinced that what I will show you from that covenant is uh, true in all the covenants that God has made because they're all part of one big covenant of his grace. But we'll be citing uh, the covenant with Abraham there in Genesis for these four things that you need to know about what's involved in being in covenant with God. Number one, how covenants work. Number one, God himself is the one who graciously establishes the covenant relationship with us. And here I'm simply emphasizing that it's God's 
initiative. He's the one who chooses who will be in covenant with him, with him, and he's the one who initiates that relationship. So in Genesis 17, this is uh, what we saw in all of those cases, we read, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, and goes on to talk about his making covenant with him. Now, folks, this is something uh, we at Resurrection love to affirm about our God. He is a covenant-making God. Having relationship with us is his idea, and it's his initiative. He comes to us. He comes to us uh, not in the same way, to be sure, as he came to Abraham, appearing before him or speaking from heaven. However, in the specifics, it was that he did that. But folks, there's any number of providential circumstances that lie outside of our control, but are part of God's plan by which he, in our lives and our experience, brings us into relationship with him. When we give our testimonies as Christians, and that is language that all kinds of Christian traditions use, we're essentially talking about the ways in which God, in our own experience, lovingly brought us into relationship uh, with him. As we're going to see in the next episode, in some cases, uh, that uh, goes all the way to the decision God himself makes about which family uh, we will be born into. But we'll come back to that. We talk about God being gracious in that he wants to have relationship with us despite our sinfulness. And we talk about God's sovereign grace uh, in as much as we understand God is the one who chooses and God is the one who initiates in terms of who will be in covenant with himself. So that's first, God himself is the one who graciously establishes the covenant relationship. You see that certainly in the life of Abram. Number two, God binds himself to his people with promises, and he binds his people to himself by commands. Now, let me unpack a little bit about what I'm saying and that I'm talking about a covenant relationship as something that is binding in its nature, binding. I'm using that word to refer both to God and to us. We are bound to God, and he is bound to us. And folks, this is what makes the difference between what you could call a casual relationship and a covenant relationship. In a casual relationship, we have all manner of those in our lives. There is no necessary commitment between the people in relationship. In a covenant relationship, oh, there certainly is. Uh, There is a woman who I have known for many, many years, over 25 years, uh, who is uh, responsible for keeping my hair cut. I have gone to her with um, uh, great satisfaction to get my hair cut over now a quarter of a century. Uh, That is a certain kind of relationship uh, with a woman in my life. There is another kind of relationship 
with another woman in my life that I have also known for just over a quarter of a century and that happens to be my wife. Now, the relationships have only a, a very surface similarity. They're both women and they're both very uh, wonderful people. However, as you can see, uh, I have no commitments in the case of one other than, you might say, uh, paying for the haircut when I'm finished uh, with it. But there is, on the other hand, a woman in this world, only one, that I have made commitments to. I have bound myself to, and she to me. And so in one of those relationships, it's a casual relationship. In the other relationship, it is a covenant relationship. That's what's happening. Next time you go to a wedding, that's what's happening. Those two people are binding themselves to each other by means of their promises uh, and by means of uh, uh, the um, vows that they take. So in our relationship with God, what binds us to God and God to him? Well, in this kind of a covenant, God's relationship to us It is also words that bind, but they're both, in both cases, they're words of God's. How are we bound to God in covenant? Well, the answer to that is, as you see in Genesis 17, by his commandments. Genesis 17, verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Now, God is going to elaborate on what that means to be blameless. Uh, He is eventually in another uh, stage of this covenant of grace in the days of Moses, going to lay out in some detail what it looks like to be holy and blameless before the Lord. But here you see it already in Genesis chapter 17. God is binding Abram to himself by his commandments. Abraham is now bound to keep God's commandments. But it works the other way as well. This is wonderful. Listen carefully. God also binds himself to Abram. Not just Abram to him. He binds, God binds himself to Abram. What in the world could bind God? It almost doesn't sound right to say that, does it? Well, listen. Only God can bind God. Only God can bring about a certain obligation to keep a commitment. And the way God does that is he makes promises to Abram. He says, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. You will know, I imagine most of you, that God's promise here of making a great nation of Abraham Uh, is behind those few words, may multiply you greatly. God has tremendous promises that he makes to Abram as part of his covenant uh, making with him. By the way, in Genesis 17, if you read the whole passage, you'd see that after introducing both his commandments and his promise as that which binds uh, him and Abram together, he elaborates on the promises in verses 4 to 8. And in the commandments... Um, He elaborates on them, uh, verses 9 through 14. Now, step back with me for just a minute. Uh, This is where I want to point out to you 
that these two things we see God doing with Abram, two ways of binding himself to Abram and Abram to God, promises and commandments. Folks, these are the two great parts of all of God's Word, the Bible. If you want to summarize everything that's in the Bible, I think it'd be a fair summary to say that on the one hand, the Bible contains all that God promises to do for us, as well as it summarize, in summarizing the Bible, it contains all that God requires of us. Our um, uh, shorter catechism in the Presbyterian tradition asks the question, what is man to believe concerning God? I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, What do the scriptures principally teach is the question. And the answer is, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God. Hear that? Believe concerning God. And what duty God requires of man. Those are the two things. We believe God's promises. We trust him when he makes promises And when God makes requirements of us, when he commands us to do things, we obey. And those are the two things the scriptures principally are about. The Bible, we sometimes say, is a covenant book. It is, if you will, a charter of our relationship with God in a whole range of ways. God is laying out for us in the Bible what he's promised to do for us, and what he's required of us as those who are in covenant with him. So, God binds himself to his people with promises, and God binds his people to himself by way of commands. Third thing about how covenants work is this, flowing from those who've just gone before. Number three, there are two possible human responses to being in covenant with God. So, folks, listen carefully. For all the emphasis that I would make, and I think the Scripture makes, on God's sovereign initiative by His words to do all the binding, folks, life in the covenant, according to the Scriptures, is all about our response to God's promises and God's commands. The whole point of the covenant relationship, in other words, is for us to respond to God's sovereign grace in his word, to respond to his promises with faith, to respond to his commands with obedience. This is called, this kind of response, this is called in the Bible, covenant keeping. Uh, Psalm 25, verse 10 says, All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Covenant keeping is trusting God when he makes promises and obeying God when he gives commands. And Abraham is, of course, 
the example par excellence of this kind of right response to God's covenant. He believes God heroically. He obeys God, again, heroically. And this, my friends, is the kind of human response that God wants. That's what he's calling for. The whole Bible is about his urging us to trust God and to obey. Call of the covenant, if you will, is to trust and obey. And all the blessings of being in covenant with God come to all those, but to only those who trust and obey. That's the one possible human response to being in covenant with God. It is what we call covenant keeping, but there's another response that I need to make also just as clear. Those who are in covenant with God, who do not believe, who do not obey, well, there's a word for that in the Bible as well. It's called covenant breaking. Uh, Covenant breaking is when those who are in this binding relationship with God, binding because of his promises, binding because of his commandments, and yet in unbelief and disobedience, uh, they turn away from their covenant God. Genesis chapter 17, uh, verse 14, anticipates this very possibility, even as God makes his covenant with Abraham. He says, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. You heard a reference to covenant keeping in Psalm 25, but here already in Genesis 17 is a reference to covenant breaking. And that's a particularly ominous word uh, for those of us who know the history of Abraham's descendants. There are many of his descendants who do break covenant with God, not just by refusing to be circumcised to apply the sign of the covenant to themselves and their sons, but they break covenant by refusing to be what circumcision actually represented, which was holy, refusing to be separate from sin. Folks, I mentioned just now that the whole Bible is a call to God's people to trust and obey, to keep covenant with him. And along the way, if you've read your Bibles, you know this, there are many, many warnings against unbelief and disobedience. That's because there is this second way uh, that humans can respond to God in covenant. So if you found yourself in, well, we'll call them the severe portions of God's Word, say um, portions of the book of Deuteronomy or many of the prophets of the Old Testament, in some cases it's in the teachings of Jesus the severe portions, or perhaps in the book of Hebrews, and you found yourself wondering, what's going on? Why all this severity? Here's the answer. Those are portions of God's Word that are written to or about people in covenant with God who are not responding rightly to God in that covenant. You might say they are wanting the blessings of the covenant without the commitments of the covenant. They say that they believe in the God of the covenant, but they aren't actually interested in obeying the God of the covenant, which of course ultimately shows uh, they don't have true faith 
at all. True faith always produces the fruit of obedience. So in looking at how covenants work, it's important to recognize that there are two possible human responses to being in covenant with God. Trust and obey is one kind of response. Unbelief and disobedience is another kind of response. And we see both kinds of responses to God in covenant throughout the Scripture. That leads me to the fourth thing, the last thing I'll say about how covenants work in the Bible. Number four, there are therefore two possible outcomes of being in covenant with God. So there is grace in God's establishing a covenant relationship with anyone. It shows his love. It shows his favor. But folks, that's only the beginning of his grace. Establishing relationship with us in time, that's only the beginning of his grace for those who keep his covenant. Listen to Psalm 103. Uh, We read in verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The psalmist is recognizing that Uh, This is one long train of blessing all throughout our days and the days of our children and our children's children. Uh, His grace in making covenant with us is only the beginning for those who respond to his covenant making with obedience or faith and obedience. It leads to only greater blessing. And folks, ultimately, it leads all the way to heaven. Heaven itself is the ultimate and final blessing of those who keep covenant with God. But there is another outcome of those or for those uh, in covenant with God who reject his covenant love and who break his covenant. And I need to say to you here, folks, that the Bible speaks of a special kind of anger in God for those who are covenant breakers. Those, in other words, who have received God's grace and bring them into covenant with him and yet who've responded so ungratefully to it. Uh, One of many places I could cite uh, is in Exodus 20. It's the giving of the Ten Commandments. And the Lord says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And then he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's a special love that God has for those in covenant with him who keep his covenant. There is a special wrath in God for those who are in covenant with him, but break that covenant. You'll know that there's a great deal about that second response of God in the Old Testament. Israel is called again and again to return to God, to love him, and she is warned that if she doesn't, God's anger will be poured out on her. And 
some theologians call that anger poured out against covenant breakers uh, the curses or the judgment of the covenant. That is something that can be experienced in this life. But folks, I also need to say that that leads ultimately to hell itself. Hell and uh, the most dreadful portion of hell uh, is reserved for those who have been in covenant with God and, and yet who have broken that covenant. Well, my friends, if I had that whiteboard that I was talking about a moment ago, I'd have this really nifty diagram of all that I've just been saying. Members of Resurrection know by now that I have uh, a diagram. I first got it from one of my professors in seminary uh, that is affectionately known around our, uh, uh, around our circles as the pumpkin diagram. And it uh, attempts to show God's sovereign initiative in establishing covenant with sinful people, uh, graciously entering into that relationship with them and binding himself to them by his promises and binding them to him by his commands. And then in that diagram, I have arrows that uh, seek to show one of two ways that we can respond to God's covenant with us. We can trust and obey, and that receives all the further blessing that God has in store for covenant keepers, or we can be unbelieving and disobedient and receive uh, the judgment that God has uh, for those who break covenant. Well, I think at this point, having talked about where we get the idea of covenant in the Bible, we did a little bit of a survey to do that, and having seen a few things, four specifically, about the way covenants work, the way God's covenant with us works. Uh, now I want to consider, I'm ready, especially in light of some of the uh, grim things that I've just been saying about a certain uh, kind of outcome that can come from the covenant. I want to consider the grace of the gospel as it is manifested in covenantal ways. So I've used this expression, uh, Presbyterians uh, and others in similar traditions to ours, uh, use the expression, the covenant of grace. What do we mean when we talk that way? Well, we mean most fundamentally two wonderful things about our covenant-making God. I'm going to enjoy uh, telling you these two wonderful things about our covenant-making God. Number one, God's covenant is gracious in as much as he himself bears the penalty for our covenant breaking. So, folks, the Bible makes very clear that God's wrath is upon those who break covenant with him, but... Here's the problem. No matter who you are listening to me, no matter how much you love the Lord, you're guilty, are you not, of unbelief and disobedience. Even as Christians, we are in a daily way guilty of both of those things. And so we do things, though we're in covenant with God, that are in themselves worthy of God's punishment, indeed worthy of hell. Do you see now, my friends, 
when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, crucified for us, we are being spared by God himself from the consequences of our own covenant breaking. Because in Jesus, God was taking to himself the penalty for all of our unbelief and all of our disobedience. In other words, for all of our covenant breaking. We are covenant breakers, every last one of us. And yet God has provided a solution for our covenant breaking. Isaiah 53 speaks of it. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. You remember that from my earliest episode talking about the gospel. So friends, it's actually built in to the covenant that God makes with us that we call his covenant of grace. What's built in? His provision for forgiveness for covenant breakers. Forgiveness is found in that element that's added, that's, that's embedded rather in God's covenant making all throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament, this element of blood. Remember, Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And that's not the first time that uh, God's people associated God's covenant-making with blood. What does blood have to do with God's covenant-making? One theologian has called all covenants as a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. Well, the blood represents the life of a substitute taken in our place. So in Exodus 24, Moses takes the book of the covenant and reads it in the hearing of the people. And they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And then Moses takes the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Folks, in the covenant that God makes with sinful men, there has to be blood. There has to be the blood of a substitute. Uh, The blood of animals in the Old Testament was a kind of placeholder, uh, pointing forward to the day when the true Lamb of God would come, and by the blood of his covenant, he would purchase forgiveness for sinners who broke covenant with God. So when I say it's built in to God's covenant of grace, I'll just illustrate that by again quoting from Psalm 25. I read it a moment ago, verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. But wait, we can't, we don't keep his covenant, certainly not perfectly. The very next verse Psalm 25, verse 11 says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. It's built into God's covenant of grace that he would provide for our covenant breaking. He would take to himself the penalty for covenant breaking in Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the first fundamental reason why the grace of the gospel is found in the covenant God makes with us. And here's the second, my friends. The second is God's covenant is gracious inasmuch as he himself 
enables us to be covenant keepers. So if you're a Christian, if you are born again by the Spirit of God to new life in Christ, then you are not only a covenant breaker. It would not be right to say merely that you're a covenant breaker, though you are. You truly believe God for what he promises. You've put your faith in Christ, and you truly desire to live in keeping with his commandments. You make it your aim, as Paul says, to please him. So what that means is that paradoxically, though you are a covenant breaker, you are also a covenant keeper. And the reason you are also a covenant keeper is that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit the Spirit of the Lord Jesus. He has awakened in you a hunger for righteousness. He's empowering you to obey. This is what the prophets foretold. I quoted already from Jeremiah, from Ezekiel now, verse 36. He promises in the new covenant to give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Any and every uh, desire that we have in any and every deed that uh, we pursue of obedience to God is as a result of God being at work within us by his Spirit uh, to enable us more and more to keep covenant. So when you're confronted with your own ability to do what God calls you to do, to keep the terms of the covenant, recall that there too, God has built into his covenant of grace a provision for us to keep covenant. Christ's death on the cross was his provision for our covenant breaking. Christ's spirit poured out into our hearts is his provision for our covenant keeping. Now, if you're remembering What I talked about at the beginning of this class on the gospel, uh, that expression, the double cure, you're hearing it all over again now in this covenantal context. God bears the penalty for our own covenant keeping. I'm sorry. God bears the penalty for our covenant breaking in himself, and he enables us to be covenant keepers our Savior, and His Spirit, both. Well, folks, what you've just heard is my best attempt uh, to give you a crash course in what Presbyterians call covenant theology. A great deal more could be said, to be sure. And there are books, uh, not a few, in fact, uh, that could lead you more deeply into an understanding of covenant If this is the first time that these things are first being laid out for you, Uh, I have a new favorite book uh, that I have uh, purchased copies of for the church book stand at Resurrection. It's simple. It's a it's a title called Covenants Made Simple: Uh, Understanding God's Unfolding Promises to His People. So, if you are interested in us studying more about covenant theology, there is so much uh, that I could offer to you for further study. But let's look. Finally, today, in just another couple of minutes, at how all of this relates to Resurrection Presbyterian Church as a local congregation, as one of many covenant communities. So, the things that I've been laying out, folks, these are 
realities that form our sense of identity as a church. You might say it this way, we are seeking to live with a covenant consciousness uh, about ourselves and about each other. Let me highlight a couple of ways that that is manifested and by God's grace will be more and more manifested uh, in our church life. Number one, covenant consciousness leads us at resurrection to a sense of both high privilege and high responsibility as members of a covenant community. Now, the sense of privilege uh, that comes from being part of the covenant community, that's captured in this biblical word, saint. That's a very common biblical word. It's not used in the Bible the way it is in certain traditions for only certain super holy Christians. Uh, Actually, the word saint is used of all Christians. Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Uh, That term saint, folks, it's actually a covenantal term. The word saint literally means holy one. And the word holy actually literally means set apart. Those who are set apart. Set apart how and from what? Well, uh, people who are saints are those who have been set apart from the world into a covenant relationship with God. And that is an unspeakable privilege. And that is very much our identity uh, as the people of God at Resurrection Presbyterian Church. We uh, have our identity in Christ and particularly as his, as part of his covenant community. So we are, we are seeking at least to be awash in a sense of the privilege of what we have been given as God has in his providence and all of its variety brought us together into a covenant relationship with him. But that sense of privilege rightly goes hand in hand with a sense of responsibility. If it doesn't, then privilege, a sense of privilege, leads to pride. It leads even to presumption. And it has at various times and in many different ways throughout the history of the church. So what we are seeking is to have both a sense of privilege as a covenant community and a sense of responsibility. Paul, again writing to the Ephesians in chapter 4, Uh, lays on them this sense of responsibility. Having called them saints in the first chapter, the first verse, he then goes on in chapter 4, verse 1 to say, I therefore, a prisoner uh, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So friends, it's not enough. We, we, We do seek to remember this at resurrection. It's not enough simply to be part of the covenant community. We are seeking to keep covenant with God by growing in our faith and growing in our obedience. Indeed, that's a primary purpose to our gathering as God's people. We talked about this already. We share life together in order, as the writer of Hebrews says, to stir one another up to love and good works. In other words, to stir one another up. Uh, to covenant keeping. That's a reference to Hebrews 10 
uh, verse 23 and 24 and 25. So another way of putting this is covenant consciousness uh, does not only entail a sense of privilege, but it also should create a whole culture of commitment, a culture of commitment. Those who are in covenant with God, uh, they're those who are committed to God. And that very sense of privilege should lead to a sense of responsibility, uh, both of those things together. So that's the first thing I want to say about our sense of identity as a covenant community. It leads us to both a high sense of privilege and a high sense of responsibility. And here's the second thing. A covenant consciousness rightly leads to a culture of both inclusivity and exclusivity. We are at Resurrection Presbyterian Church in a certain sense an exceedingly inclusive community. On the other hand, in a certain respect, we are an exclusive community, both in terms of what we understand about being a covenant community. Let me explain what I mean by that. I've already spoken uh, recently in this series about how immense the church of Jesus Christ is uh, so that for all of our diversity, we are united as Christians throughout the world in our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And folks, that makes for an immensely broad and diverse covenant community. Uh, it makes the church, in fact, one of the most inclusive of all human organizations on the planet. That's what we at Resurrection want to be. We want to be inclusive in that biblical sense of the word. So there's a place in our fellowship, in our covenant community for, of course, male and female, young and old, single and married. There's a place among us for educated and uneducated, blue-collar and white-collar. There's place among us for the black, the brown, and the white there's place for the Arabic, the Asian, the African, the American. Friends, I'll say it this way. If you share with us faith in Christ as Savior and Lord and are committed to seeking first his kingdom, there is a place for you at Resurrection Presbyterian Church because you too, as much as us, are in covenant with God. That's what I mean by Resurrection President Church as a local covenant community being inclusive in the best sense of that word. Well, here's what I mean by church being exclusive in a certain biblical sense. Our covenant consciousness also makes us aware that not everyone is in covenant with God, and we cannot act like it is otherwise. Of course, the world's version of inclusivity demands an embrace of everyone, everyone we meet, uh, no matter their creed or their lifestyle. But that's not faithful to the biblical teaching on covenant. So this leads me to make the distinction uh, and leads resurrection to make a distinction between those who are fellow members of the covenant and those who, I'll put it this way, are we are hoping and praying will become members of the covenant but are not Yet, there really is a line that's drawn throughout humanity between those who are part of the church 
and those who are part of the world, those who are in covenant with God, and those who are not. And we do not try uh, to erase for a moment that line that God himself has drawn. Now, in the life of resurrection, perhaps the most conspicuous way you'd encounter that is in our celebration of communion or the Lord's Supper. So we believe that the sacraments, there are two, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are New Testament signs of the covenant. So they mark out God's covenant people from the rest of the world. And so to rightly administer the Lord's Supper, for example, we can't serve it to any and all who show up. We have to be exclusive in our observing or celebrating the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a sign of covenant membership. And so that's what lies behind the words that we have printed in our bulletin each week because we celebrate the Lord's Supper each week. Quote, the sacrament of communion is for baptized Christians who have made public profession of faith in Jesus Christ and are members in good standing of a Christian church. We go on to say in this announcement uh, in the bulletin, if this is true of you, we warmly invite you to join us at the table. That's directed to visitors, uh, strangers we've never met. If it's true of them that they're baptized Christians who've made public profession of faith and are members in good standing of a Christian church, we invite them, even if we've never met them, to come to the table. But then we go on to say, if this is not yet true of you, we ask that you abstain from communion at this time, but use the time instead for reflection and prayer. We are not willing to extend uh, the fellowship of that particular part of worship, the table, which is intended to draw that line that God himself has drawn between the church and the world. We're not willing to extend that uh, inclusively to absolutely everyone who we might meet. Folks, it's not an attempt to be unfriendly, to be sure, but it's not inclusive either in the popular sense of that word. It's a reflection of our awareness that uh, there is a line that God has drawn. It's between those who are in covenant with God and those who are not. So, uh, these things will be developed even further as we continue in this whole class, because in a very real sense, everything that I'm going to continue to talk about, particularly as I move on to talk about the nurture of the covenant community, uh, will be based on uh, and will be drawn forth from uh, these principles. I'm going to wrap up today a rather hefty podcast, I acknowledge, uh, by pointing out something to those of you who may be new to Presbyterianism. And I just want to make it uh, as obvious as possible. Uh, Notice, my friends, how much of basic Christianity we associate with this biblical concept of covenant. Have you noticed that in the course of this uh, episode? Uh, So having a personal relationship with God, we call that being in covenant with him. Being part of the church of Jesus Christ, we call that being included in the covenant community. Christ's work on the cross, I've spoken of that as his bearing the consequences of our covenant breaking. The Holy Spirit's work in our hearts, I've spoken of that as his enabling us to keep covenant with God. Folks, this whole Christian life that we are living, uh, we think of in terms of 
covenant life, savoring the blessings of the covenant on the one hand and, if you will, shouldering the responsibilities of the covenant on the other hand. Evangelism. Well, that's for us inviting those outside the covenant to join us in covenant with God. Discipleship is our helping each other to grow all the way up into the full experience of the blessings and the obligations of the covenant. So, folks, I I, I trust it's clear by now. At Resurrection Presbyterian Church, this concept of covenant stands behind everything that we are and everything that we do as a church because, according to the Scriptures, it is the way that our relationship with God works. And, folks, that relationship that we have with God, well, it is everything to us. Next time, I will uh, point out how all this understanding and, indeed, enthusiasm for the concept of covenant in the Bible uh, actually impacts our view of children here at Resurrection and our ministry to them. So that's where I'll pick up next time, but I have certainly taken enough of your time for one episode. Thank you for uh, listening in, all of you. I am thankful to talk about such uh, worthy and weighty things uh, with you. The Lord keep you in his grace. Uh, Christ is risen. You've been listening to another episode of Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. This is a ministry of Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Matthews, North Carolina. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please consider sharing it with someone you know. Thank you for joining us.